good morning or good evening wherever you are and welcome to the Small Speculations Podcast, your one-stop shop for Laramie sites of public memory. I'm Dr. Nancy Small and I'm here to wrap up season one. I have to say I've really enjoyed hearing my students have conversations. So if you felt the same, then it's going to be a bit of a letdown to know that this time it's only me. But I definitely want to celebrate those students and all I've learned this semester. So I'll keep it kind of short, but do my best. In that spirit, I want you to know my students gave me feedback on my own first podcast, and they told me to not talk too fast, but also keep my energy up, use colloquialisms like y'all and folks, and don't sound too much like a professor. So like I said, I'm going to do my best here, um, and I hope y'all are doing all right out there in podcast land. So what I'd like to begin by doing is just making a brief comment about each one of my students. Um, There's nine of them, and I was just found them all to be such delightful human beings that I thought it would be fun to just give you a little glimpse of what something that each one of them taught me. So I've got them in three sets. We're going to begin with three students who taught me a lot about location, location, location. So Carissa, she studied a memorial to Kenny Sailors, and through her project, I was really inspired to think about how a central hero gets the credit for an achievement. So it's like Kenny Sailors is the hero of the narrative in the invention of the jump shot. While he certainly popularized it, as Carissa pointed out, other basketball players, maybe some of his peers, maybe some kids on a rundown basketball court somewhere in Nebraska, were certainly also working on ways to increase their skills too. But Sailors gets the credit, and he also gets the 18-foot-tall statue on our campus as a result. So it's important to remember that any person or memorialized in a kind of hero status probably has lots of people behind them doing the same thing or helping them along. Again, for location, Michaela's study of the Chief Washakie statue had me thinking a lot about what Paul Connerton calls inscribing and incorporating practices. Inscribing practices are the ways that we write down information related to memory. And incorporating practices are things that our body is kind of instructed or persuaded to do when visiting sites of public memory. So the giant depiction of Chief Washakie riding into battle on Grand Street here in Wyoming tells one story. So that's the kind of what it tells you as a statue. But surrounding it, there's extensive plaques that paint a very much fuller and more complicated picture of him. So in order to understand him as a fully inscribed memory, you have to be able to access all of it. Of course you can, it's on a public sidewalk, but it's placed literally right next to a very busy street. You can't step out into the street to get a better angle. If you walk across the street, you're actually too far away from it. So that placement next to that busy street means our bodies only have certain ways to be in the Washakie memory space. And that in turn affects how we experience and perceive that space. It kind of limits it and directs us only in certain kinds of ways. So thank you to Michaela for that. Finally, about location, Eric's project on the university family sculpture um, by Robert Russin inspired me to think about how a site of public art becomes a site of public memory through the way we interact with it. So the sculpture itself is clearly art. Um, And in fact, you might ask, how is it also memory? Well, it becomes memory because students are passing it, faculty and staff are passing it on these sidewalks in this very busy kind of central yard for the university, Prexy's Pasture, on a daily basis. 
So our interactions with the, with the art in terms of making memory can be purposeful. We might stop and look at the art. We might look at the university family and kind of ponder what it's up to. Or those interactions can be coincidental. We might walk by the site really frequently and form memories in proximity to it, but not directly associated with it. So in some ways, a site that's designed to be a kind of ode to a community can become part almost of a secondary memory scape where other things like lounging on the grass or playing frisbee with your friends or trudging through the ice and snow become the more central memories themselves. So my second set of three is a, my big picture takeaway from them is the role of visibility in the practice of memory. Tristan studied the Matthew Shepard bench, and I remember at the beginning of his study really like probably making some comments I shouldn't have because I, I didn't want to bias um, his project, but just about, it just seems so insignificant. Like I wish we had more to celebrate Matthew's life. Um, but, but through his project, he learned that the Shepard family has done some things to kind of keep Matthew's memory small and contained because they don't want to draw too much attention to his story for fear of backlash. So sometimes a bench is just a bench for a reason. Now the shepherd bench is more than that. It's kind of an altar. It's a place of reflection. It's a place where some visibility can happen for folks that don't always feel visible in our community. So it's more complicated than just being a bench, but in some ways it's just a bench. So I'm not exactly sure how I feel about that outcome. I'm really proud of Tristan for teaching me and really excited to have had my understanding of that site evolve. Um, but it also makes me a little sad and frustrated because while I res totally respect what the Shepherd family desires, um, I also think about our LBGTQ plus community and kind of what they need, particularly in these current times. So back to the role of visibility in public memory. Um, Lexi, who studied um, some uh, portraits at the Native American Education Research and Culture Center taught me to think differently about the idea of anachronism. So an anachronism is an idea or a thing that is out of place. So it's like when you see something from a Star Trek movie and they have an old-fashioned telephone in it, you're like, no, that doesn't fit. That's an anachronism. Thomas Dunn, whose um, work is going to be cited in the show notes, also talks about this in his article. Usually to say something is anachronistic for public memory means we're saying it's odd because it doesn't fit. So the thing doesn't fit and creates dissonance. But with the photos in the Native American Culture Center, um, the indigenous folks there in those photos are thriving in contemporary times. So what Lexi showed me was the anachronism isn't about the folks in the pictures. It's about us, the mostly white viewers, who ourselves are stuck in an imagined past where indigenous Americans are only part of history. So it's like when you see lots of sepia-toned pictures, black and white pictures, the Ed Edward Curtis um, portraits, you think, oh, look, how beautiful those people who no longer are here. Well, what the photos in the Native American Education Research and Culture Center show us is that indeed they are here. They're living, they're present, they're thriving. So in other words, in this situation, what Lexi has taught me, the anachronism isn't in the object, but it's in the viewer. Me as a kind of shallow thinking person in our current uh, social situations need to realize that my thinking is anachronistic rather than the photos promoting anachronism. 
Um, Lexi's podcasting part- partner, Elena, also taught the whole class, but particularly me a lot about Sherman Sage, a Native American elder whose mural downtown doesn't have any accompanying identifying information. So Sage was a really important person, but has faded from everyday storytelling and comic public histories about tribal folks. He was a leader, a medicine man, and a ghost dancer. He was brave and important, but also cheeky and funny. So she's taught me a lot of just generally about who he is, but also about the importance of inscribing practices at sites where the person or the event being remembered isn't as familiar or isn't in kind of our current lexicon of history. Last weekend, um, my uh, my family and I visited the historic site of Fort Laramie. And when I was there, I was looking out for Sage's name, but I didn't see it. So Elena's project, as well as Sage's presence here in Laramie, inspire me to think about the kind of memories experienced um, that are keep, that help keep things present and help keep history from passing away. Finally, for my last three students, um, I would like to say how they have taught me about how storytelling is all tangled up with public memory. So in that same downtown space where the Sage mural is, Janae has transformed my understanding of the Buckhorn Bar. Now I know some crazy stories about Metallica playing there, goalposts being shoved through the door, and that no one really knows where that famous bullet hole came from. But more than that, Janae has me thinking about bars as hubs of storytelling, story witnessing, and oral culture overall. The fact that we don't have a definitive history of the buck is less important because people are busy every day and well into the night making their own personal histories and sharing memories there. In other words, the humans living in these memory spaces are actively engaging in what Jennifer Rice and her colleagues call a process of recollection. They're, they're um, evoking uh, Kendall Phillips' work there. Visitors at the bar and in other places are always making their own memories in these spaces, sometimes in harmony with the site and sometimes against the grain. So similarly, we'll go from the bar to the church, and I'm grateful that Matt's project about St. Paul's has me thinking about how the people of a church, and of course that's a trope that's often evoked, right? The church is the congregation more than the location. The people of a church can feel out of place with the material rhetoric or material expressions generated through the building itself. So things like the artwork and the stained glass windows. For Matt, that mismatch between the art and the feeling of the community or the way that the preaching was performed and the services were conducted created a kind of dissonance. But it can also go the other way too. The people in the church can espouse one kind of values where the kind of quote unquote old fashioned church and its decorations can espouse another. So in other words, the message here is that the verbal stories are bound up with the material stories. So last but certainly not least, I wanna thank Lucy, who took us to the Green Hill Cemetery here in Laramie. I've always loved cemeteries, but couldn't exactly tell you why, but her project really framed them as a place where we bury the dead, but also where we go to continue living. Um, It's a very kind of quiet, human, and communal story that's always in process. From the unmarked graves and homemade caskets she taught us about to the various ways people say goodbye to their friends and loved ones, a cemetery is equally about history, remembering, and living. It's layered, here's a fancy word, polypsestic, try to say that six times fast, 
It's a layered or polypsestic representation of our community and ourselves as humans. And the best resource for understanding a cemetery in that way is actually through talking to the people who care for it. So that's pretty cool. The written history may be limited or dispersed, but the oral history of the living people is rich and ongoing. So in my kind of summative remarks, I just want to say how proud I am of my students. They did a brave thing talking to a real audience. If they were nervous, they didn't let on to me. Instead, they took up the project with open hearts and a great focus. And you don't, you don't know this, but behind the scenes, my students, after each podcast, had private discussions where um, after the, I posted the episodes on a discussion board, they each gave feedback to each other on what was going well and other ways to grow and improve. So from episode one to episode two to episode three for each of the pairs or groups, they did grow. And I'm really, really proud of them. They struck a perfect balance of being brave, but also helping each other with kind of frank feedback. And I appreciate that, their genuine sincerity in supporting each other. Finally, I'm excited to announce that we will have published a walking tour available online or as an app. The app, it's called Pocket Sites, P-O-C-K-E-T-S-I-G-H-T-S, all crammed together, Pocket Sites, and it's free to download. Then the tour, which is actually of the sites you've been hearing about this season, is also free. You can access it online by going to www.pocketsites.com. When you search for Laramie, Wyoming, ours will be one of the results. The title is Public Memory, Laramie and the University of Wyoming. And I'll also um, throw a link down in the show notes as well. So if you made it this far, thank you so much for listening to our first season of Small Speculations. I'll keep the podcast feed active so it can be part of my classes coming up next academic year. Congratulations to my students for surviving the term and many of them for graduating. And I, or we, hope to encourage you to keep your eyes open to the sights of public memory all around you. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.